This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. This is Mike Ballyman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 213, brought to you in association with Smart and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Christian Yerting, thank you for the laughter, Christian, founder and CEO of Cellpoint Digital, who formed in 2007, and whose website says that they are the global leader in payment orchestration. Payment orchestration is a phrase that, as far as I'm concerned, never existed until relatively recently, albeit more recently, my inbox has been swamped with it so it appears to be a dead hot topic. Is payment orchestration being hyped? Brackets, I assume it is. Is it important? Indeed, what the hell is it in the first place? Christian says it's very important, albeit less often done well than spoken about, and he should know what he's talking about. So, let's have a short and sweet intro after last episode's overly lengthy intro. What is payment orchestration? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. morning, Christian. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. So going back to my massacring of your, your surname, which for the listeners' benefits, in case anyone's taking notes, is spelled G-J-E-R-D-I-N-G. We were talking a little bit beforehand about wokeness, but let's push that to one side. But I did, did hear about six months ago that asking people about their surnames and names uh, was racist or something like that. So ever since when, I ask uh, most of my uh, guests, uh, certainly all those with curious spellings, about their surnames, trying to retain a little bit of liberty while it's still there. So you're from Denmark. We did a, an LFP recently on Scandinavia, which I think sort of Denmark's part of, although it's sort of, to me, it looks a little bit like the continent, but it's maybe this sort of bridge nation. But apart from knowing that, I might have guessed that GJ was a kind of Norwegian-y thing to start a name with. Not that I'm particularly familiar with the average Danish surname. So it is Danish. It's a Nordic surname. And um, obviously Nordic people always try to uh, put letters together in a way that nobody else can pronounce. So it's pronounced Gjerding, but most English-speaking people will say Gjerding. It's just the GJ is, is a little hard. And that's fine. So, so I think, uh, first of all, just on the Norwegian name, it's not a Norwegian name because Norway used to be part of Denmark. We'll just get it straight from yes, the Yes, I did a lot of business back in the day with, um, uh, with Landsbank in Iceland when they were busy sort of uh, imploding yeah. uh, later in it. And uh, going back to being part of the Danish Empire, they suddenly had views on, on their experience of being colonial subjects of, of Denmark. And actually going back even further, at around about uh, the year 1000, we were pretty much part of Denmark's colonial expansion. And in particular, a king whose name is a typo, well known over here called King Knut, C-N-U-T. But actually in terms of how he acted uh, where we are today in London, I think the uh, untypoed version might be more appropriate. So they don't feel you're on the back foot after all that. No, 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 no. I mean, Denmark had a, uh, a long and glorious phase of expansion, which ended in uh, total disarray as we uh, gave up any territory ever conquered by the Vikings. And we've done that for the past thousand years, with uh, Norway being one of the last, just before they discovered all the oil and gas that made them incredibly wealthy. And that's why there's a joke in the Nordic countries or, or Scandinavian countries, which is that Denmark and Sweden will declare war in Norway and surrender within the first five seconds so they can take over our national debt. Brilliant, brilliant. So, I mean, just on Denmark, actually, because it, it is interesting. The previous episode where I did a very long, waffly intro was on fintech in Africa as a whole. And the thing that I was extremely keen to emphasise, given the modern lack of understanding of most things, which seems to come from America, 
which is that Africa is a place that has got fractal complexity, both in terms of geography, in terms of the, the peoples, and in terms of the history. You cannot say anything simplistic about the geography of the entire continent of Africa. You cannot say anything simplistic, as many, all too many people do, about all the peoples of Africa. And equally, you cannot say anything simplistic about um, the history. So from the outside, I don't actually know that much about Denmark per se. So if we sort of zoom in to the fractal complexity within the word Denmark, as I just sort of said in passing, there must be an extent to which Denmark is kind of a bridge nation between the continent, as we see it from our little island over here, and Scandinavia. And when we did LFP on Scandinavia, that was really sort of claiming Denmark as part of its part of its own. But also you have this interesting kind of North Sea history. So as a, a Danish person, you tell me and the listeners a, a little bit about what Denmark is in terms of identity. So Denmark is probably a little bit like that cousin from whatever part of the country that's very remote, who you see very infrequently, and you rarely want to invite for the big and posh parties. If you ask a Dane, I think we're really important. How many of you are there? 5.8 million, 5.7, something like that. About the same size as Norway. That's about 5 million, isn't yeah. it? Austria's about 4. And Sweden's about 10, 11, maybe 12 now. So, so the, these are small countries. We used to be pretty much one area back in the day. And you know, over time, we split up. We, we spent a lot of time fighting each other over stupid things, which historically, I think, many Europeans and Britons have done. But I think today, you, if you ask a Dane, we're, we're really important in the global hemisphere. If you ask us, if you ask the rest of the world, most people don't know where we are. And in terms of culture, you guys self-identify as kind of Scandinavian more than European? Absolutely, and I think we are in many ways. Obviously, we've got a lot in common with Norway and Sweden. And what are the languages like? comparatively? Very close. I mean, it's uh, Danes probably have a slightly easier time understanding Swedes than the other way around. We originated from the same base language. And you understand Icelandic? No, Icelandic is very different. I thought my Icelandic friends could understand a bit of Danish, but you had more problems understanding them or something. Very much so. And I think many Icelandic people seeing that Iceland used to be part of Denmark, speaks Danish, uh, or at least used to do. But their language is different. To me, uh, in, in my personal experience, it's easier to understand Norwegian and Swedish than it is for me to understand Icelandic, by far. So I think as, as a nation, yes, you're right, we're probably more Scandinavian than we're European. Danes are eager travelers, I think, on whole. I think we always travel a lot. It's in our national blood, I think, is to go out in the world and explore for obvious reasons, right? We're a small country. We, we um, for the longest time since the Vikings, haven't had a hell of a lot of influence on uh, global situations, so to speak. So I think that, that, that as a nation, we, we probably tend to go out to explore and, and learn. And talking about languages and Vikings and all this kind of stuff, I did happen to see a short YouTube yesterday about the seven letters in the English alphabet that have disappeared over time, one or two of which were from um, Norwegian-y, Viking-y import, Danish import. So it's all yes, often forgotten we had well more than 30 letters in the alphabet. Anyway, so Denmark is important in terms of technology. Roughly speaking, I mean, if you're just looking at sort of things like fintech or tech as a whole, is it a large ecosystem over there? Is it a relatively niche ecosystem? Do you all live in one tiny little part of the Copenhagen? No, no, it's growing, and it's growing on a national level for sure, very rapidly so. And I think we've got a number of very successful fintech companies that originated and are originating out of Denmark at the moment. I know Denmark has a pretty large tech community, considering our size relative, of course. And I think that back in the day when I started in the enterprise space, companies like IBM, etc., would use Denmark as a testing ground because we were technologically pretty advanced always compared to our relative neighbors. And I think that uh, that, uh, that has driven 
a sort of a community of both education and also companies and incubation that, that that's happening. So so I think we're pretty astute when it comes to, to fintech. And I just saw there's another company, uh, I, I believe yesterday, that just received 250 million euros in, in funding, which is a big amount for, for, for a Danish startup company in one go. Ah, okay. So in terms of your career, Johnny, then what brought you to founding Cellpoint Digital back in 2007? You're a youngster, compared to me, but compared to perhaps the average man of the audience, you may be slightly older than them. So what was your career going back from being a Viking? Yeah, I want to be Viking. Um, (laughs) So as I said, I I spent years in the enterprise IT space, which is where I grew up. So I started up with mainframes and whatnot, and then came into open computing and all this good stuff. And in 2000, I kind of got tired of working for everybody else, generating wealth. So I thought, why not work half the time, start my own company and just generate lots of wealth? And I I did build a company, and I sold it in 2005 and, and made some money. And what did that company do? We did mobile commerce. So really, we were delivering content to mobile devices quite early on. So we were serving brands like United, Microsoft, Dr. Pepper. And they were using these digital content pieces as a remuneration or, or a, a, a prize for their uh, customers. And then we didn't have the billing engine that could bill between all the different owners of this, of this content. And obviously, I learned really quickly that you don't work less, you work a lot more, and you make a lot less, and uh, you risk a lot more when you work for yourself. Until the exit. Until when, if, when if you get one, and then the sort of pot of gold arrives. Potentially, at but least. But for many founders, the pot of gold never arrives, because they never quite make that field where the rainbow ends. For sure. And my first one was good. It was not, I didn't get independent wealthy, but I made enough money to start Cellpoint. And, uh, and I thought, coming out of this, I learned a lot about what was at least in my perception, going to happen in the sort of larger world in, in regards to digital and payments. So obviously going back to fractal complexity, the whole sort of 15-year journey of Cellpoint will be a, a complex one if we, we zoom in. We don't really have time for that. But just very briefly in terms of bookending it, in 2007 when you woke up one morning and thought, ah, I know what I'm going to do after you've had your sort of uh, eggs on toast. I'm going to found Cellpoint Digital today and it's going to blah, blah, blah versus what it's doing now. So what was the initial intent? What was the initial drive? What was the initial gap in the market you saw? And then briefly, because we can cover it a bit more later, where are you guys at now? Yeah, so we were founded to create what we call commercial orchestration, which is basically payment orchestration. We probably had a slightly fussier view on the edges in the beginning, but the base concept is the same. We, We could see that... The digital sales channel was going to arrive for real. It was, it was already happening in, in certain areas. We could see that payments would, would fragment and, and become something more sophisticated and also more fragmented. And we could see that large enterprise merchants would struggle to integrate this new channel and payments into their legacy infrastructure. And we built an engine to, to manage that. Okay, so that sounds like what you're doing at the moment in terms of the word orchestration. So well, let's just start with sort of the absolute basics to make sure that we're all on the, the same page here, as I say, the orchestration word is something that I would have previously associated, associated perhaps with sort of Beethoven and, and Vivaldi, which is like, you know, they whistle a tune and then they sort of manage to arrange it for sort of 36 different instruments in, in an orchestra. And knowing very little uh, about anything in particular, sadly also including finance, I hadn't come across this whole payment orchestration very much. And then suddenly, as I get hundreds of emails a month, suddenly like every other one is telling me that payment orchestration is the future and all this kind of stuff. So just in terms of absolute basics, what on earth is payment orchestration per se? If it was an exam question and you're allowed to answer in a dozen words or something, what is it, or two dozen? You just nailed it. That's exactly what it is. Arranging lots of instruments in an orchestra. Absolutely, <laughs> it is. And, and it really is. So, so think about it this way. You're a business and you've got your core 
focus, right? Whatever that may be. Maybe you're IKEA, you sell furniture, right? And so your business is about creating this furniture, produce it for mass at cost, and distribute it through your warehouses and online, right? That, that, that's your business. Your business is not payments. Your business is not per se e-commerce. You, you rely on technologies to support you there. E-commerce is really complex. Online commerce is complex. There's a lot of different ways to, 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 to connect, to market, to present, all the things you've got to do. You've got your core systems, be it EIP, whatever it may be. And on the other side of all this, you now have to take payment. And payment is no longer just one thing. It's, it's a whole range of different things. Some of the basic stuff, Apple Pay, people heard about that. It's, that's a payment method. Credit cards is a payment method. Some people want to use open banking as a way to pay, pay from a bank account. You might want to have uh, buy now, pay later abilities. So if you look at it this way, and then you go one step beyond that, and you look at the total financial supply chain, which is really managing, orchestrating your, your payments across reconciliation. You know, you've got to get your books, you've got to get paid, you've got to pay out. There's a whole range of activities happening, just like a big orchestra. And if they don't work in concert at the right time, what you're going to get is not very nice. I see. So, OK, so all of those were very good words, and I think you've used them in quite a good order, but I think you overran the 12. <laughs> Sorry. But never mind. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually better to be clear. So, I see. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the history of that, given that you have been around for 15 years of orchestration. So, again, knowing very little and then only knowing things as super low-res JPEGs. Back in the day, there was something called eBay, which was a sort of marketplace and people could buy and sell stuff online. And, God, isn't this cool? And the beginning, it was, oh, my God, but how do we all pay for it? And then Peter Thiel and friends said, I know, we'll create this thing called PayPal. And for a not too small a price, we'll, <laughs> we'll enable you to get money around the world and all that kind of stuff. And they made that and blah, 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 blah. And so it was fairly, fairly straightforward. And then somewhere along the line, a combination of uh, evolution and letting a thousand flowers bloom and people have loads of I- ideas as part of the fintech umbrella, perhaps, of about, hey, you can pay this way, and you can pay that way, you can pay this way. That way. But long story short, from what you say, if I'm a merchant, I don't give a shit. I just want the fucking money, you know, just give me the bloody money. It's a pain in the ass. Can somebody else sort it out? And because over time, fintech has created more and more innovative, quotes, innovative ways to pay, the whole thing turns into more and more of a headache that I want less and less to do with. You know, I just want sort of, you know, like Jean-Luc Picard, make it so. Just, just get the payment done. I will tell somebody if I'm a merchant. Yeah, you could say that way. So it's slightly more complex than that. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> Surely my complete caricature was entirely accurate. <laughs> well, tell us about history then. You tell us about history. Yeah, so, so think of it this way. Let's take a nation like the UK, right? You're, you're a rail nation. You've done really well on rail. Well, I'm not sure that Nicola Sturgeon would entirely agree with that. But All right, my... fair enough. Let me try not to get into the local reality, but at least seen from the outside, you're a rail nation more than most other places. And so you go back 200 years and you, I don't know how many railroads you have. You might have had two or three or five, you know, from major cities to, to so one Point to point, right? Pretty much. I could take the rail from here to here, and that was it. And now I can literally plan a trip from anywhere in the UK into undergrounds or whatnot. Let's just pretend it all works at all times, which obviously it doesn't. So orchestrating that becomes really complex. And now you start adding a lot of other things. You know, there is a terrorist threat. You've got to protect your, your, your railroads in and out. You, so that's fraud. You've got problems with, with all kinds of compliance. So there's things you've got to do. You can't just say, hey, Mike, why don't you figure out what's going on with the rail? Just decide how, when, when the brakes are good and when they're not good. So you've got all these things come in, which is compliance. And you can keep on adding on that. And when you do that, at some point in time, somebody needs to have total oversight. And you can't run it in compartments like you used to do. You've got to have it all work together. 
And that is really what orchestration is from the word. And it's payment orchestration. Because payment is fragmented, because there's a lot of different ways of doing it, because you are bringing payment rails together, it's not just one payment rail, it's multiple and global. So imagine you have a banking system, let's just go back 50 years. Banking systems were impossible. I tried to open my bank account when I lived in the UK, which I did in 80-something. Holy moly. I mean, that was a nightmare, trying to open a bank account. And imagine I have to do that as a merchant on a global basis. I've got to take money in and out. There's a lot of different things I've got to do. On top of that, I've got to take payments from 30 different countries in 30 different ways. I've got currencies. I've got compliance locally. Payment orchestration is created to manage all that from one single view. And also to give you real-time access to what's going on so you can react to situations. Okay, that sounds convincing as it should do. (laughs) So one dimension we haven't uh, addressed for the listener at this stage, and uh, I'm about to give you a, a binary choice, and the answer may be it's not, it's not zero or one, but there are numbers in between. So when one talks about payment orchestration, is one talking about a service which companies will, will provide for merchants, or is one talking about a product? Download our software or use our API. And I'm aware that software as a service, and all this, you know, it blurs the gap. But, but is payment orchestration generally a service or a product or neither or both? Or? It's more both. I mean, and, and I think we need to distinguish between the two, as you just said, service and a product. In its core, it's a product. It's a platform that you get access to. Depending on the size of merchant, you either want everything orchestrated for you. So somebody just sets it up, they configure it, and they run it for you. And uh, you can still get access and see what's going on, but you don't really have a big payments team in your organization to deal with it. And the payment orchestrator may or may not offer that. We do. But it is basic scenario. It is a platform that you buy access to. And we have large merchants that does a lot of the management on their own. They have payment teams that are quite capable. They've got IT teams. They've got this, that, and the other. And they use this just like they would use SAP for uh, uh, enterprise resource planning, ERP. I see. So if I get around to setting up a merch store on the London FinTech podcast, because as you can imagine, demand has been astronomical. And so I'm selling hoodies in six months' time, London FinTech podcast hoodies, which has suddenly become all the rage. And I remember, oh, yeah, I spoke to Christian. There's this orchestration thing. And my low-res JPEG was the whole thing's a pain in the ass. It sounds really complicated. And I'd much rather it got done for me. And I say to my website people who do the sort of website stuff, oh, yeah, can you go and use Point Digital? So for the simple use case, let's forget sort of Amazons of the world. For the simple use case, I want to flog hoodies online, but I don't want to be bothered with all this payment stuff. I just want to hear the ka-ching when the money lands in my mm-hmm. bank account. Is that just a kind of an, an API, a platform, or, or whatever? Is that, what's the entry level? Yeah, it's just an API. Uh, so so your, your, your web people would just connect to our API, and they'll get access to our console, and from that moment on, they can deploy payment methods onto your mobile app or your mobile website or your website in general, and uh, they can ensure that whenever funds uh, are paid by the consumer, that you can settle the funds real quick. You can reconcile it into your bookkeeping. You don't have to worry about all the frustrating back office stuff that, that comes with, with running a business from a payments perspective. I see. That's a sort of trivial use case. London FinTech podcast starts selling hoodies. At the more complex end of the system, perhaps without naming names, what would an example of payment orchestration that you guys do for a super big client be? Yeah, so we launched a number of large clients, particularly in the airline space, but we're also moving in. We just today announced our uh, partnership with Radisson Hotel Group globally. They're quite big. They're quite big. They got, I think, about 1,700 properties globally. So what we do for these types of merchants is that they're global. They got customers all over the world. Customers are traveling. And that, e- that, that increases complexity, right? It's about taking, I got Danish credit cards. I'm traveling all the time. 
right now I'm in London. I booked my next flight here. So, you know, I use payment methods from one country in another country and I'm buying in a third country. So that means you got somebody taking my money in another country. You got all these points of complexity that this major merchant needs to manage. And traditionally, you know, you had the, the, the salespeople, you had the, the online, the e-commerce people, you had the treasury people, you might even have payments people separately, IT people. And the problem is that you, you touch all of these when you talk about payments nowadays. And this is where payment orchestration comes in and helps them. They give them that centralized single API access to all the tools they need to manage this. But I think the most important point and the reason why these merchants want to do payment orchestration is really for the financial benefit. Just having technology for technology's sake, very few companies does that. So these merchants do it because there is a massive return of investment potential. We're delivering what equates to 11% on flow, which means that if you're a merchant that pumps through a billion dollars a year, we'll deliver roughly $110 million return a year. So I've turned over two pages at once there. Just taking a step back, so my initial understanding at a simple level was that this whole payments topic has turned into a, a global payments topic has turned into a PIA, a pain in the ass. So it's just something I want somebody to sort. That's the first thing. Now you're pointing out the fact that not just is this a pain in the ass that I, a, a merchant, could rather do without because I just want to sell hoodies, but you're pointing out that somehow using some clever magic, you can quote, make money out of this. So in terms of the added value from payment orchestration, on the upside, rather than just the removal of a pain, which is a removal of a downside. So on the upside, in terms of creating value by doing payment orchestration, what are the major categories that enable you to generate, create money, create profit? Yeah, so there are three main buckets, if you wish. There, there is increased conversion. So this is where you actually are capable of selling more. You, you, you're able to close more sales, which is a lot of different components underneath that takes care of that. Things like presenting the appropriate payment method at the appropriate point in time. And so in real time, when I come on to, to your uh, service, whether on my mobile or my computer, wherever I'm doing, and you recognize that, that I'm, I'm coming from this location, I'm trying to pay with this method. And so the intent is to simplify things for me as a consumer to make me convert and for you to maximize the conversion ratio in in order to generate obviously additional sales and there's a range of things here that just makes that happen just on that one just again keeping it simple so back in the day in in the earliest days of sort of tech and online commerce and all that maybe it's perhaps the late 90s people that sort of read the odd blog would have been familiar with the idea that oh it turns out, gosh, we didn't know this before, and there was a point in time when it wasn't known, where on this interwebby thing, if you put a red button saying buy now compared to a green button saying buy now, you actually get, I don't know, 1%, 15% mm-hmm. more people click the button. Gosh, the colour makes a difference. So that's sort of the basic thing. But then we fast forward 25 years later to a much more sophisticated world, and it turns out it's not just a question of whether your button's red or green, but no doubt there's a whole black art of complexity around, I don't know, whether you put the button in the middle of the screen, I'm taking a trivial example, or, or whether you've sort of got to drop down with 5,000 credit cards on which country you're coming from. And so the whole thing is really, again, going back to fractal complexity, you can zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and make it more and more and more and more complex and more and more sophisticated. But long story short, if you do all these, let's just say, it's no longer a question of is the button green or red, but actually that for the sake of argument, there are 20 different parameters about the whole thing. And, and you guys have learned how to optimise that. Is that 
roughly speaking? Yeah, like? that's what we call checkout conversion. So that's important. There's another one, another area within uh, increased conversion, which is optimizing acceptance. Means that when you pay for something, when I'm a merchant and I have somebody pay for something on my site, the problem can be that for whatever reason, it can be a technical problem because there's a lot of different intermediaries in, in the flow that the technical connection breaks down and the payment just times out and I don't get the payment. Something went wrong, you get that message sometimes. Or it might be that you are sitting... Uh, as I do right now in London, trying to pay with Danish credit card, and maybe the acquire that is used by the merchant fraud system flags up and or flares up and just blocks me from from com- completing the payment. It's something called soft declines, which is really declines that you are capable of retrying for whatever reason, either with another acquire or through another route. And so, so the point being is that there is a whole range of components that we combined into one with a smart system behind it are capable of ensuring that you as a merchant are seeing an increased conversion. And that's significant. Another area is cost reduction, which is also important, right? We, we can reduce the cost of the payment. It could be processing costs. Maybe you're doing all your transactions end up being international transactions for whatever reason. And instead of settling in with, with the local acquirer, um, and which typically may be cheaper depending on the kind of payment method you're using. We have automated reconciliation, which means that you have a lot of different uh, rails the payment comes in on. Instead of somebody sitting in the back office spending you know days and days and days trying to reconcile this, Everything is automated, it's streamlined, and it's just stuck into your accounting platform. So the whole pressure on the back office, which is actually pretty big, is uh, minimized significantly. You've got commercial leverage with your providers, right? You, you can cut out the middleman in, in a lot of scenarios. You're able to find the shortest route with the fewest intermediaries, which again minimizes the cost. And so the, you, you've got these things that amplify the value of each of your uh, payment transactions. Okay, and I can see how immensely complex it is for something like um, Radis. And if I had too much red wine and cheese late at night, I might be dreaming that I'm the, I'm the guy who's got to sort out all the payments for, for Radis, and which must be a, a hell of a job. But when we've got, as we do increasingly in the digital world, more and more new products and, and, and getting them to market faster and faster, how does the orchestration help that? Well, so there is a reduced time to market. First of all, a payment orchestrator who has a platform already built in will continuously increase add uh, and amend their connections they have to the payment ecosystem, to the merchant subsystem and to third-party providers. And so the intent here is to continuously evolve with, with what's happening out in the market and be able to offer those to, to your merchants. They, in turn, can go into the, to the uh, uh, centralized console that we provide, and they can go and say, I want to configure this new payment method for this market in this scenario, and the system writes rules for that, and those rules run in real time. So whenever somebody checks out, the rules start to get applied, and the appropriate payment method at the appropriate time is displayed for that particular consumer. Right, okay, so all that's very clear, and I'm glad that I'm not at the the start of my career in this uh, world, because it all sounds incredibly complex. Not that I look back with fondness on the days of, of sending checks in the post and hoping they didn't disappear in, in the way, but like everything, it gets more complicated and then something comes along to help one solve it. So, as I say, you guys have been at this for some 25 years, which I think is obviously shown by the fact that you can clearly and simply summarise it, even using more than a dozen words. But it's an interesting explanation, which I hadn't understood. On the downside, we're moving the downside of it being a pain in the ass. On the upside, we're generating more money by increasing the conversion ratio, decreasing the cost of payments and improving the speed to, to market, all of which sounds wonderful. So if you're forecasting the future, you take your ruler out and you join a line between 2007 or 2022, or as my simple characters was too simple for you, you've got a 
maybe you've got one of those spliny things. When we were at school over here, maybe you had them over there. We had those sort of, like, made of lead with rubber on the outside. You'd use it in maths and you'd sort of join all the dots on a, on a piece of graph paper. So mm-hmm. you can do, you know, more, more splines and more complicated curves than just drawing a ruler out. So I assume you're going to do one of those in your head rather than just the 2007, 2022 data points. Where is this all going in the future? I mean, is it pretty much going to be the same in five years' time? I.e. I start my hoodie business or I start my global hotel business and I go, God, it's all pain in the arse. Not only that, but actually I can make a few quid out of this. I'll call sell point and you just sort it or is it is it the kind of more of the same now like you keep doing more and more complicated things your system gets cleverer and cleverer and bigger and bigger or do you see things evolving in in different ways I think it's going to evolve in different ways and, and, and just a small correction we've been around 15 years not 25 oh I can't count that don't worry about it amazingly enough I did actually get an A level in maths in fact I got a couple of A levels in maths but you wouldn't know <laughs> it would you really I think in the meantime I've sort of drank some alcohols and a lot of my sort of brain cells have disappeared or something like that Ooh. well so I think it's going to get a lot more embedded into all the different things going on so so let, let's look at technologies like blockchain, which is a very confusing subject of its own, but will have significant implications in, in what's going to happen in technology in the next 10 years. Payments will be, will be involved in that. We're talking about the, the super apps where, you know, really a sophisticated marketplace beyond, like, right, we see Asia is doing it. Uh, you could say in a way Amazon is trying to become it. But we're going to see a lot of these things happening where people are buying in communities and they're getting access to everything and they're going to subscribe to these super apps. And then, you know, you're going to start seeing stuff like the metaverse. And people are, you know, very early on in terms of meta. But but if you try it, it's actually really sophisticated and you're going to see a lot of stuff happening in here. You start combining these things and you combine the fact that 10 years ago, starting a hoodie business in the UK would take a lot of work. You needed whippy people to do things, as you said, and whatnot, whatnot. Now, my wife started a business uh, a few years ago online on her own. She's not a technologist at all. And she got herself online in a few months, getting onto a, a platform offering from, from, some, from, from a, a company that had everything in one go. And, and she can now start a business and she can start selling globally. And so I think that you're going to see so many different things change. You're going to see the way people work change. You're going to see the fluctuation in people going from big companies to, to start up uh, on their own, to create something with an idea, because it's become more accessible. And if you combine all this into one, you will see that what payment orchestration needs to service in the next five to 10 years is going to be a lot more than what we do today. Yes, and let's not get into CBDCs and um, other such nightmares as that, Um, although with uh, today's the first day of a new incoming Prime Minister uh, over here. Before we kicked off, we were talking about governance in in Europe the last thousand years. An interesting feature of governance in the UK in the last 15 is that we've had three Prime Ministers for whom nobody voted, or rather for whom a tiny percentage of the population voted, which is an interesting one. But anyway, so there's all the CBDC stuff. But I think one thing just comes to my mind, because you're talking about globalisation, uh, which is obviously a word, we've all heard it, we all use it, we know what it means. But without giving a, a full and complex answer to this one, because it would be. We're also seeing a trend, given the America's use of economic warfare is only ever increasing, of the move towards a multipolar world. And the BRICS certainly seem very keen on innovative things like low tax rates. I think personal tax is 10% in, in Russia. They run a negligible budget deficit or got negligible government debt. In Europe, we keep printing money and in, in America, they keep printing money. But anyway, all complex stuff and all very murky. We're looking through a glass darkly at this point of the future. But one scenario is that rather than this sort of neoliberal globalism where it's, like, it's all one world and you, know, you just need one system, we actually break up 
into sort of, sort of Orwellian three, three different islands or a couple, couple of islands. I presume from an orchestration perspective, that's just at a tech level, a, a bunch of different rules. Like if I'm selling a hoodie, I'm in the UK and I haven't really left Europe and I'm not allowed to sell to Russians because Russian bad and, and all this kind of, kind of stuff. And literally the rules will just actually go per segment, as they already kind of do in a very complex way, I mean, in FS, in terms of compliance. I mean, the compliance rules in Singapore are different from in Hong Kong, are different from Denmark, are different from the UK, and there's all that nightmare to be dealt with. So do you see any particular challenge from an orchestration perspective of a move to a multipolar world, or one where a chunk of the world are using CBDCs and the others are using gold-backed currencies, or is this yet more reason for Cell Point Digital, because actually the merchant wants to know about that even less than he does about all the stuff at the moment? Yes, yeah, so, so there's a couple of questions in here, and, and one of them is going to be guesswork, right? But the whole point with cryptocurrencies is, and, and I, I, I read points of view from a lot of different people, Warren Buffett and others, and saying, you know, Warren Buffett says uh, crypto is never going to be worth anything because it's not backed by any any particular valuable uh, asset. And, and other people saying this is the reason why we can avoid blockage from a multipolar world, potentially. And so I have a hard time guessing between one or the other. But orchestration, obviously, is intended to take the pain away for the merchants as best possible from compliance. And, and there is a lot of compliance. And some of this compliance is absolutely adversarial and stupid in many ways. And I, I get the gist of why we're trying to do it. I, too, can also see a dystopian reality where we do break up into, instead of trying to create one big market, we're, we're going to go the other direction and create you know siloed areas where some can trade with others and, and whatnot. And, and I'm not sure where we're going to end up. I would hope we end up in, I wouldn't say singular market, but easy access for entrepreneurs to start a business and, and sell their product on, on a global scene. Either way, orchestration is going to be necessity to, uh, to manage that. And, and it's just going to increase the demand, even for medium-sized merchants, just because of the complexity in all the things that we discussed. Yes, I, I think you're entirely right there. I mean, we all hope we don't go down any kind of... <laughs> we are going down it already, but we all hope that we sort of at some point put a break on it and then start reversing uh, down dystopian directions. But to the extent we do, and to the extent that complexity increases, then the need for orchestration increases. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theenlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Right, Christian, that's been extremely clear. I actually do know about payment orchestration. And uh, as listeners will know, every sort of few months, I go through literally hundreds of emails, all of which sort of sound dire. And I'm never quite sort of sure which ones are going to be interesting. But uh, I am pleased that I did payment orchestration because like many things, you sort of zoom in. There's actually lots of interesting stuff behind it. And you've mentioned Cellpoint Digital once or twice, but not entirely. So maybe you could just tell us sort of basic things like how many people you have, uh, which countries you have offices in. Uh, where your clients are, and how much capital you got, or are you doing rounds, and, and, and what you need even more of to be even bigger and better in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So we are actually global. We got offices from Singapore to Dallas and everything in between. So India, Middle East, Europe, multiple places in America, and we've got multiple places in Europe. Uh, we have clients in all these regions. So we've got APEC clients, we've got European clients, we've got Middle Eastern clients, we've got North American and South American uh, clients uh, live today. We're 185 people total growing today. We received, I think, $78 million of funding total. 
over the past 15 years. And we are looking to grow significantly as payment orchestration is growing. We can see the market is taking off. You said yourself, it's a term that really came into existence not long ago. We claim we invented it, and I'm sure other people will say the same. But we have been talking about commercial orchestration for 15 years, and that's before any of the current competitors were alive. We started talking about specific payment orchestration three years ago. And I think that as a company where we're going is that we're going to grow significantly. Our intention are global. We want to be best in breed. And I think we are, for sure, for enterprise, probably one of the biggest providers out there, if not the biggest. And we got aspirations to, I wouldn't say world dominance, but uh, on a serious note, we we really want to be a global provider for uh, from a mid-market up to to, uh, what we call super enterprises. Well, your economic empire certainly stretches much further than your Viking ancestors could possibly imagine. Although you actually, the, the Vikings, as, as we easily forget, did actually make it to North America. They did. Uh, just for some reason, it's kind of petered out. So in terms of just shout outs then, in terms of being uh, an even bigger and better a company in 15 years, if not 25, I'm, I'm very grateful for you pointing out that 2022 minus 2007 is 15. I really am losing the plot if I ever had it in the first place. What would you like more of in case any listeners out there happen to have it and uh, should contact you? Sex, drugs, rock and roll, developers, partners, you, you name it. Is there anything you actually need or are you as good as you can possibly imagine right now? No, no. First of all, we, we, we are on a growth path and uh, most certainly we're going to take more funding to accomplish that. We think right now is the phase to divide and conquer, if you wish. And I think that's going to be an important part. So so that's one, money. Uh, the other one is, is, is talent. Absolutely. We're always looking for super talent and particularly within fintech, but also in adjacent areas. Data science is, is another area we are, we're very keenly focusing on. I mentioned blockchain, absolutely. And from a partner perspective, we are partnering with important players who are building out into some of these new niches. So marketplaces being one. We're collaborating with ISVs, if you take the traditional payment environment. So so partners is also an area that we're looking for. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. It's been very clear. I always like podcasts that turn out to be more interesting than I imagined beforehand and more educational. So on behalf of myself and the listeners, I thank you very much for that, Christian. And I wish you and Cellpoint Digital every success in the future. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
are wild like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.